Here we go. This is the last coffee house. We've got non-fiction today. Why evolution is true. It is from the Sam Harris reading list. We haven't done a Sam Harris one in a little bit, so we're back on that one. Why evolution is true was written by Jerry A. Coyne. It's published in 2009. It's a primer on the evidence for evolution. Now, this was in the height of the new atheist cultural upheaval. At the time, a lot of religious resistance to evolution was present in schools and in the media. And personally, in my geography, there was a lot of it too. So this was something that was duly needed at the time and evolution seems to be far less controversial nowadays maybe thanks very much to books like this i know there were several evolution books that came out and this is one of them that i hadn't read yet but i just did so it opens up with the Kitzmiller v dover case if anybody remember of pandas and people if anybody remembers that back in the day where the judge determined that intelligent design was not a scientific theory it was a religious theory and he used the phrase breathtaking inanity which was something that has been stuck in my head ever since so coin says there are six components that he's going to go over related to evolution here so the fact of evolution genetic change over time is the first one second is gradualism it takes a long time for all this stuff to happen third one is speciation what that means and how that works what a species is fourth is the common ancestry of different species fifth is natural selection as a mechanism and sixth is the other processes that contribute to evolutionary change he brings up paley held oh, that lovely paley with his watchmaker argument the teleological argument for god which is absolutely hilarious just ask yourself how do you know that the watch is created by comparing it to the sand and the rest of the stuff around the watch so therefore it would follow that the sand and all the rest of the other stuff isn't created <laughs> how does that work okay so it's one of those that doesn't actually give a de definition of what a creator or creation would be it's a tautological argument it doesn't make any sense anyway just a theory so this is the old canard that evolution is just called a theory it's only a theory coin explains that in scientific parlance a theory is not a hypothesis that's unsupported a theory is something like atomic theory or gravity the theory of gravity it's been tested and proven robust and so we know it to be something factual of course people can use the term in any way they want to but in this particular case when it comes to evolution when it comes to atomic theory or gravity these are ones that are extremely well supported and as established as fact as things can be in the scientific world he goes into fossilization talking about fossils and how extremely rare it actually is for things to be fossilized so how difficult it would be to find transitional forms between organisms that have shared ancestors and yet we did look at that so tiktolic is one of the major ones it's a fish with feet essentially it shows an intermediate step between fish and amphibians it was predicted in a particular strata and that's where it was found so this is really important there are multiple lines of evidence that converge all over the place that support the theory of evolution that's why it's so strong and another famous one archaeopteryx it shows the link between birds and dinosaurs it was found in the correct place and it has you know shared characteristics intermediate characteristics between those things many more of these kinds of things have been found in china of course darwin didn't have any of this stuff when he was presenting or writing about his theory of evolution so we found this stuff as a prediction of of his theory he talks about coin does talks about vestigial features so things like goosebumps something that would historically when we were fully covered in hair and the hair would stand on end it would make you look bigger and scarier when you were <laughs> when you got scared but we still have goosebumps but we don't have the same hair structure that makes us look scarier uh, when the when the hairs stand on end wiggling of the ears this is something that some people retain the ability to be able to do this and it's a vestigial trait that is unnecessary in humans but it's something that like different animals like cats and dogs use to locate sound the sources of sound better so it's not something that we use we don't use that for anymore just people do it because they're weird atavism 
systems, that's another area. This is where an animal will recapitulate an ancestral trait that is not being expressed in the phenotype. So, like legs and whales. Some whales will develop with a leg. They'll, <laughs> or, or a couple, of, they'll just get a leg that pops up. They don't need legs. We know that they were mammals at some point in their evolutionary history, so something like that will redevelop. There are other things like the GLO gene that synthesizes, it used to synthesize vitamin C in human beings, and it got turned off at some point in our historical evolutionary history, so we can't synthesize our own vitamin C anymore, uh, which is a dick move, all right? That would make things a lot easier. I like oranges, though, but maybe it was all the other vitamins that you get from fruits like that that made it more beneficial to not be able to synthesize your own vitamin C. And I'm not a genetic expert or anything like this. I'm telling you what. I know a little bit, but uh, I'm telling you mostly what Coin talks about here. He talks about olfactory genes in dolphins and how they're still there, uh, but they're unnecessary. They're uh, vestigial. Did you know the platypus has no stomach? He just, the platypus just has in his like esophagus, he's got where he breaks down, it goes right into the small intestine. There's no stomach there. What a weird creature, huh? But it retains the genes for the stomach, but doesn't have a stomach. They're just turned off. Uh, humans sometimes, they, or even I think just during gestation, they develop gill slits and then they disappear. There is a whole question of, because vestigial organs or vestigial features can be appropriated for some other use. And then it's hard to argue that they're vestigial. But you can still see the history of the evolutionary development and where they came from and why they're there. And whether the genes match or the phenotype matches organisms that would have come before for this particular organism in the evolutionary chain. And there's a curiosity of why human beings look like tadpoles as they're developing in the womb <laughs> instead of just looking like tiny humans. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Thiggy points out is that it's part of our evolutionary history that leads us to develop gestate in those ways as we're developing as opposed to just being tiny humans that are just breakdancing in the womb or something like that. Brings up the laryngeal nerve, one of the terrible things, just like the thing going right through the prostate. The laryngeal nerve is way longer than it needs to be. It goes and wraps around something, causes a whole bunch of other problems because of the way that it migrated from our ancestors. It went around instead of behind, so it's a, it's a whole issue. But it's evidence for the fact that we have that evolutionary pedigree instead of it being something that was just specially created or we just showed up like that. He brings up Noah's Ark. I love that. That's such a funny story. I just like that. I have such so much more affection for the Bible now than I used to. <laughs> just the storytelling in the Bible and the ideas and, and that kind of thing. All sorts of bad stuff too, but just as a piece of literature, it's beautiful. He brings up, oh, continent species. And of course, there are all the ridiculous things about how marsupials ended up back in Australia and how loss ended up back in South America after the whole flood thing where all the insects went and and how any boat ever could have held all of the species that would have been alive at the time and they couldn't have lost one of the pairs. Uh, nobody takes, well some people do but you shouldn't take it too seriously. So you'll find certain things like there'll be uh, two different areas. I think he's bringing up cacti. He called them succulents I think which was a little weird. <laughs> Weirded me out a bit. In two different areas with the similar terrain you know they don't have any contact you know like if you have a desert in one place and a desert in another place, you'll have species that develop in those places that are similar but different. So they'll be responding to the very similar terrain, but they'll have different evolutionary pedigrees. So you can use this as evidence to show that it's something that's developing and independently developing characteristics that are very similar, but it's not just the same thing that's developing. And he brings up the continental versus oceanic islands, and there's this whole discussion of the way the species mix and how foreign species end up on continental versus oceanic islands and it was all excellent i'm sure but for some reason it just was not clicking to me <laughs> 
<laughs> what was going on there. I was just, my brain was going somewhere else. So, and I didn't go back and reread it. So my apologies. But he was talking about how biogeography is a very important source of evidence for evolution as well. Anyway, so the engine of evolution is the next part. He talks about natural selection, beautiful thing. Darwin, how he had little evidence, except like breeding between dogs and seeing traits change. And Coyne talks about how the things that are necessary are to have one, a variable population. Two, that some of the variation must be from genes. And that three, the variation must affect the rates of reproduction. So it can't just be based on chance. There there must be something that's impacting the rate of reproduction to change the allele frequency in the in the group. You could have things, things that develop, like this is interesting, that there are genes that could be really positive in your youth, but they are really detrimental in old age, because that's not something that we had to deal with historically. <laughs> You know, when everybody's dying at 30, it's not really that important to worry about what genes are going to do down the line. Uh, now we do have to worry about that. So that's an interesting dichotomy. And just as a definition of evolution, evolution is the change of proportion of alleles in a population. So that's, it's really important to think about it in those times. So alleles, alleles are genes where you have multiple forms of a particular gene that can, that are in a population. And so one of them can outcompete another form of that gene. And you've got genetic drift with another function which is a more random process rather than and i careful to use those kinds of terms in this <laughs> in this context but whereas natural selection is a very deliberate process genetic drift is less deliberate but it's another thing that's impacting the frequencies of alleles in a population and the, the frequency of phenotypes in a population and when it comes to genetic drift it's usually it's not uh, useful nor harmful it's just kind of there and it cannot create adaptations but it's something that contributes to biodiversity so he brings up oh yes so intelligent design and irreducible complexity. I remember hearing that a lot. In the bacterial flagellum. Um, so this would, as far as I know, we don't understand all the mechanisms that lead to the way that the flagellum developed because it, it is a really complex system. But this is like uh, building an arch and then taking away all the things that you use, all the scaffolding that you use to put up the arch and then saying, well, it was impossible for anybody to have built that arch piecemeal because it's all dependent on the rest of it being there. So as far as I know, there's an excretory system that is very similar in function and the mechanics of the way the flagellum works. And so reappropriation of that is actually pretty significant. I know I read a paper specifically on this that came out in between 2009 and now. <laughs> that had a whole bunch of details about how this worked, but I can't remember the particulars of that. Eye evolution, on the other hand, is very well understood. It's another one that was claimed to be irreducibly complex, but it's actually, you see all the intermediate forms of the way the eye evolved. You see it in nature. So when it was just a, a chunk of light sensitive cells versus a flap versus a, a lens structure where you have the light that refracts as it goes through, so you can better understand which direction it's coming from. And all the way up to the eyes that we have, have virtually every step along the way uh, we've got examples of and is pretty well understood. It's also eyes uh, developed independently in different organisms as opposed to just being part of one evolutionary history. Sex drive and evolution. So sexual dimorphism in body size, obviously in humans, even though people will deny that nowadays for some reason. Uh, dimorphism means there are differences between the sexes phenotypically. And phenotype just means like the physical expression of the gene. So it's what somebody looks like or what their hair color is or something like that. So you've got dimorphism in 
human beings, which would contribute to the complementarity of human beings when it comes to reproduction and uh, having individual responsibilities when it comes to rearing of young, that kind of thing. That creates competition. You know, if, if you if it was asexual, then you would have competition for resources, but you wouldn't have sexual competition. The f- <laughs> hilariously dragonflies when you see drag i've seen this many a time i never knew what they were doing i mean i figured i could have guessed i always turned on some mood music but still uh dragonflies when you see them flying around attached to each other apparently that's the male just staying in there <laughs> to prevent other males from getting in <laughs> so he's like riding her back like you pregnant yet are you pregnant yet <laughs> That is pretty hilarious. Uh, Imagine if that's what humans did. But so the gene of parthenogenesis, so somebody being able to just reproduce on their own, if it was better when it came to survivability, then it would have been more competitive against sexual reproduction because sexual reproduction is really costly. You have to find a mate. You have to mate with them. You have to work well together for a long time to rear your young. So it's tough. And they're not sure why sexual reproduction in general. It's not like there's been a smoking gun to know for sure why sexual reproduction is better than parthenogenesis or some other method of reproduction. But it's definitely been proven to, to be more... The dimorphism of two sexes and sexual reproduction has been proven to be way better than three or more sexes in organisms. So that there's that at least. Uh, but they also think that uh, variability, you know, just the amount of genetic diversity that you can get with sexual reproduction is way better than you can get with non-sexual reproduction. It might also do better at destroying bad genes because if you combine two sources of bad genes and it's fatal or something like that you can get rid of those out of the population more easily and it looks like oh yeah so the record for the woman with the most i would have never guessed it was this high to be honest but the woman with the most having had the most children is 69 from a russian peasant woman 69 children that woman had she had a particular ability to double up on her children Um, she had a lot of twins and over the course of her life and the some king some male king so for men some male king somewhere i can't remember what it was uh, but he had 342 daughters and more than 700 sons jeez i mean wow is there any chance on earth that he knew even 125th of their names i or did they even get names who knows then coin goes into talking about species and what species are and what species mean for purposes of evolution and obviously so the the clearest definition of a species two things that can reproduce together those are the same species if they can't reproduce then those are not the same species pretty simple of course it's not actually simple because sometimes you've got things that can produce hybrid offspring but then it's sterile because their reproductive genetics are similar enough that they can impregnate and have a a kid that that's going to function but it's not going to be able to reproduce itself so that's how you determine speciation and one of the things that especially intelligent design advocates never understood was that you have to define species and you have to figure out what that actually means and we do the best we can with what we have to determine what a species is versus isn't and the thing that i heard a million times and they always got stuck on this is they'd say no it's just some things are the same kind you know dogs are the same kind as other dogs and cats are the same kind as other cats and then you just ask them to define kind oh i have no idea you know i look at it and it kind of looks like the other things therefore they're the same 
same kind. It's childish. It's such nonsense. I'm so glad I barely hear that anymore. However, when it comes to science, you do have to figure this stuff out and you do it based on the sexual barriers, the reproductive barriers. So you could have, you end up with like ring species on islands. This is one of the ways that we've been able to observe speciation in real time where geographically birds will migrate across the island and by the time they get back around to the original population, they can't reproduce anymore. So there's been a speciation event because they don't have the complementarity anymore genetically. So this is the theory of geographical isolation. As far as I know, this has been observed many a time in different kinds of organisms that when you have geographical isolation of two groups, populations of a species that used to be able to reproduce, that you can often, as long as there are selection pressures, obviously, then you can often end up with two different species, a speciation event. This happens, it can be observed the best with plants. You know, plants are a little easier to manage on this front. And when it comes to bacteria, <laughs> the thing is that bacteria generally don't sexually reproduce. Uh, so you can't define species in the same way. So it'll be just like how genetically common they are. And then you can see speciation because they'll, you can see how alleles change in groups of bacteria and how much they change over time. But you don't have the same definitions for species for bacteria. So you can't, it doesn't apply in the same way as it would with like birds or humans. Okay, moving on to the missing link. Remember this? When you started Breath of the Wild and nobody knew where you were, but then you woke up and you went to go save Zelda, that's the missing link. So, sorry, that's so nerdy. <laughs> but so you've got, obviously, uh, a ton of developments when it comes to this stuff that Darwin never had when it came to all the fossils and those things that support evolution from that perspective. He had no idea. He just thought that because our closest relatives, chimpanzees, lived in Africa, that that's where we came from. But then people obviously went there and they started digging up and they're finding Australopithecus and all sorts of and Lucy and all sorts of other examples of intermediate related species that we didn't even know about when we were trying to figure this whole evolution thing out but now there's there's tons and tons I mean there are tons and tons it's not just like we found one okay solved there are thousands there are thousands of individuals rep representative of these different categories of our evolutionary history that show clear progression in all all sorts of stuff when it comes to walking upright and hip placement and the leg displacement and the way that set up the skull and brain size, the way that hands worked, the way that our thumbs, how much dexterity you have in your thumbs. So he talks about, Coin talks about the Scopes trial, uh, which was about teaching human evolution. And they curiously were like, oh, no, it's fine uh, to teach about evolution and other things. But when you get to humans, you can't do it. I, I just, I don't understand. It's like, if it's a valid method of doing that why should your emotional reaction to the one trump what we're talking about Linnaeus even grouped primates with humans even though he was saying that a creator made them all and just put them in these similar categories but that was really controversial at the time interestingly chimpanzees have about a 450 cubic centimeter brain and human beings homo sapiens have 1450 so a thousand more cubic cubic centimeters of brain than the average chimpanzee pansy that's embarrassing uh, and then he goes into genetics a little bit how we're only 1.5 percent different from chimpanzees in general however he points out he makes sure to point out that this very small difference can mean huge differences when it comes to the structure of proteins uh, because you just scatter those throughout and it can drastically change the way that proteins are made which should be clear because we're we're pretty different from chimpanzees <laughs> he goes into race a little bit i'm not sure why he had to dive into this i mean it seemed like it 
this is 2009. This is before everything just went nuts and we're in clown world. But he wanted to go into race and try to make sure to say that there's not all that much difference between people based on race, which is fine and accurate. But he also says that there are differences and it's important to not just have this overreaction and say that race means nothing. Of course it does. Today, the biggest one, he brings up like lactose tolerance and how there are different rates of tolerance of lactose and how when you're a baby, uh, sure you need lactose, but in our evolutionary history, we wouldn't have all that much access to dairy products. So we didn't need lactose after that. And so a lot of people just don't develop it afterwards, especially like Asians are far more likely to be lactose intolerant. So he was talking about in those terms, of course, today, a big controversy is the whole IQ controversy, which means nothing for individuals, but it's something that is brought up. And he was talking about how today there aren't many selection pressures when it comes to race. There are some diseases that are race specific and like I talked about lactose tolerance, but today we can pretty much compensate for bad genes in a lot of different ways. And so it kind of normalizes the response that people have to the environment or can have to the environment. And then he goes in to talk about how evolution can't replace religion. So he's trying to quell people's fears about that. It's so quaint, so quaint, but that's, that's coin. And you know what? It's, it's really a good primer on the evolution, the science of evolution. If you just want to basically understand what the evidence for evolution is in something that's actually a really, really complex field, but people talk about like they just perfectly understand it. (laughs) (laughs) then uh, this is an excellent book for that. It gives you an excellent primer, just all the basic lines of evidence. I wish it would have gone more into DNA, but I understand why it probably didn't. It's a little more technical when you get into that. Some of the really fascinating things that I found, I think even without, if we didn't know about DNA, the evidence would be overwhelming. But when it comes to the actual DNA, I can't even remember what they're called, but you can find where viruses have insinuated themselves into DNA sequences and they end up in the chromosomes get get passed on and you can mark those as markers as you're going but <laughs> this is where viruses get insinuated into the DNA code and get passed on so you can see a different species you know along the evolutionary chain that's an outside event that is like a little marker that you can check to see okay what's the evolutionary history here where did we break off and you can compare chimpanzees to human beings and not only that the fact that we have 23 pairs of chromosomes and chimpanzees have 24 pairs and you can see where our chromosome, uh, our last one, got fused together with another chromosome and made one long one. <laughs> and it happens to have the same genetic characteristics as the ends of chimpanzee chromosomes. So that's that's actually really interesting and extremely strong evidence for the fact that we are related and there was some kind of a genetic event that was a huge deal because it led to all the crazy stuff that has led to human beings instead of just being more comparable to chimpanzees. So it's... it's it's really interesting stuff. I like it. But other than that, I mean, there was a lot of great information. I don't know. I just don't see people questioning evolution in public anymore. <laughs> I don't know if they just got pounded into subservience or what. Uh, or more people just heard the responses to these arguments, those fake arguments that were be being put out there. And so it's just not worth fighting over anymore. Uh, I don't know. But uh, so that could be partly thanks to this book. Otherwise, I mean, that it was, it was worth reading. It was worth going back over that stuff it's an interesting topic and now we move on i think <laughs> we've got uh, durkheim coming up coming up soon and we've got a whole bunch of other books there are a couple of really 
really, really long books that I decided to take on. So I don't know how long those are going to take me to get through. But hopefully I can try to get as many as I can in a row instead of copying out and throwing in some film stuff. Although, no, actually I'm throwing in some film stuff because there are some that I need to talk about. So anyway, <laughs> thanks. Thanks for listening. I hope all is well. I will see you on the next one. This is The Last Coffee House. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs>